This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a sneak preview of the November issue of the Observer. First, from the Dayton section, Beth Abraham Interim Rabbi's Classes. At the end of October, Beth Abraham Synagogue Interim Rabbi Melissa Crespi launched two classes via Zoom, Matters of Life and Death, a text-based study of significant issues in modern medical ethics, is held at 11 a.m. on Tuesdays through December 7th. What Happened to All the Women? A Study of Women in the Bible, Talmud, and Beyond is held at noon on Thursdays, October 21st, November 4th, 11th, and 18th, and December 2nd, 9th, and 16th. Texts are provided, and knowledge of Hebrew reading is not required for each course. Both classes are free and open to the public. For more information, go to BethAbraham.org or call the synagogue at 937-293-9520. Virtual Intro to Judaism course enrolling for January. The Synagogue Forum of Greater Dayton will present its 14-session Introduction to Judaism course on Mondays from 7 to 8.30 p.m. via Zoom, beginning January 3rd and running through April 11th. The annual class is open to anyone interested in Jewish learning, dialogue, and exploration. The course offers an in-depth look at Judaism from conservative, orthodox, traditional, and reform perspectives. Instructors are rabbis from Dayton synagogues. The registration fee is $36 for a single or couple. For more information or to enroll, email Rabbi Judy Chesson at j. C-H-E-S-S-I-N at AOL.com. Kristallnacht programs. Area colleges and universities will commemorate the 83rd anniversary of Kristallnacht with a virtual scholarly discussion and an in-person remembrance with a virtual option. Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, November 9th and 10th, 1938 in Nazi Germany, is considered the start of the Holocaust. Sinclair College and Wright State University will present a virtual discussion of Kristallnacht at 4.15 p.m. on Monday, November 8th, with Dayton Holocaust Resource Center founder and director Renate Friedman and Lisa lefstein Bersuch, Associate Program Director of Facing History in Ourselves, a global nonprofit that uses lessons of history to challenge teachers and students to stand up to bigotry and hate. To register for the program, email Thomas Martin at T H O M A S dot M A R T I N six O five seven at Sinclair dot edu. The University of Dayton will hold its annual Kristallnacht Remembrance at five PM on Tuesday, November 9th, on campus in the Immaculate Conception Chapel. Associate Professor Carola Daphner, UD's Chair of Global Languages and Cultures, will present the talk, They Stand for Ages More. Professor Sharon Grotto will conduct UD's World Music Choir in a musical remembrance. UD's remembrance will also be live-streamed at YouTube. And next, an opinion piece I wrote for the November issue of The Observer. Does Does Dave Chappelle get a free pass on hate? How do you respond when a dear friend spews hate? When someone who has championed you, who has held up your spirits in your darkest hours, 
publicly ignites vile judgments against people who were continually denigrated and othered. Where do you begin? This, I believe, accounts for the thundering silence across the Miami Valley regarding Yellow Springs resident Dave Chappelle's new and final comedy special for Netflix, The Closer. Released Tuesday, October 5th, The Closer now ranks as Netflix's third most watched program in the United States. Early in The Closer, Chappelle compares Asian people to the coronavirus. Throughout, he questions and mocks the legitimacy of transgender people in ways that are just ugly, while sharing stories of the transgender comedian whose career he helped. She took her own life in 2019 after receiving a barrage of hate on Twitter for defending Chappelle's anti-trans jokes. Chappelle strongly implies in the closure that he lays her suicide at the feet of transgender people. He tells the audience he has set up a trust fund for her daughter. Chappelle also attacks Jews in ways that are centuries old but still in vogue among anti-Semites. The veteran stand-up comedian talks of his idea for a movie. In my movie idea, we find out that these aliens are originally from Earth, that they're from an ancient civilization that achieved interstellar travel and left the Earth thousands of years ago. Some other planet they go to, and things go terrible for them on the other planet, so they come back to Earth and decide that they want to claim the Earth for their very own. It's a pretty good plot line, huh? I call it Space Jews. How is this anti-Semitic? It plays into the long-held belief among Jew haters that the Jews as a people control the goings-on of the world's affairs for nefarious reasons. That Jews are alien not like everyone else. It also buys into the most ignorant stereotypes of false anti-Israel narratives absent any understanding of the history of the Jewish people and the Middle East. Chappelle returns to the Jews toward the end of his program. He talks of a slave in the pre-Civil War South who buys his freedom from his owner, buys his own land, and then buys slaves of his own. Not only was he a slave owner, he became a slave breeder and employed tactics that were so cruel even white slave owners were like, yo, my man. He was a wild dude, but he did it because that's what successful people did at the time. How could a person who went through slavery perpetrate the same evil on a person who looks just like him? And shockingly, they're making a movie about it. Ironically, it's called Space Jews. Netflix is standing by Chappelle and The Closer even as its trans employees and supportive co-workers have planned an October 20th walkout. Chappelle himself seems defiantly unrepentant, proud to identify as one who is under attack by the cancel culture movement. From the stage of the Hollywood Bowl following the October 7th screening of Untitled Dave Chappelle documentary, he told the audience, if this is what being canceled is about, I love it. For this, he received a standing ovation. It's disheartening to live in a time and place in which we need a reminder of the obvious. Chappelle's mockery of Asians, Jews, and transgender people is drenched in prejudice. Prejudice targeted against any group of people is wrong. Is Dave Chappelle anti-Asian, anti-Jewish, anti-transgender? I don't dare answer any of these questions. None of us can look into his heart, but his very public words are all of these. It reminds me of the words of another comedian beset by his own ugly problems. 
in Woody Allen's 1994 film Bullets Over Broadway, he has a character played by Rob Reiner proclaim the ultimate statement of hubris. An artist creates his own moral universe. Could Chappelle believe he creates his own moral universe? I've heard him refer to himself as an artist. He and his craft have brought much good to the Dayton area in general and Yellow Springs in particular. The entertainment, philanthropy, partnerships, and opportunities he pursues in Yellow Springs brim with excitement for expanding the hippie village into an even more cultural hotspot. He helped us reclaim the Oregon District with the Gem City Shine concert he put together with A-list celebrities and performers when we so desperately needed healing after the mass shooting there in 2019. In the midst of the COVID pandemic, he was there for us again when we all needed a good laugh with his summer camp outdoor series in Yellow Springs. Dave Chappelle and Friends, an intimate, socially distanced affair. We in the Dayton area like to be liked. It's not a bad thing. That one of America's most famous celebrities has chosen to live here and throw grand parties here elevates us to the eyes of his celebrity friends and, to an extent, to the rest of the nation. It elevates us in our own eyes. But a true friendship is not a one-way relationship. As painful as it is to accept and navigate, our friends' generosity and very public expressions of prejudice are both real and present. Does friendship grant a free pass when it comes to hate? Some might argue that I don't fully understand what's at stake. Over several years, I've seen our local Holocaust survivors go out to area middle schools and high schools. There, they share their personal stories and answer students' questions. And to a person, the survivors emphasize the same points. Stand down hate wherever you see it. Stand up for those who experience hate. Don't be a bystander. These days, an even better phrase has come into popular use, be an upstander. The new Wolf Holocaust and Humanity Center at Union Terminal down the road in Cincinnati has an entire project and exhibit dedicated to inspiring people to become upstanders, which the center defines as individuals who stand up for others and their rights. They fight against injustice and unfairness, and they use their character strengths to inspire action and become the best of humanity today. They are willing to sacrifice. Here's hoping Dave Chappelle will choose a path toward healing and forgiveness, and that all of us in the Miami Valley use our strengths to become the best of humanity today. And next, the Dayton Jewish Observer's Mazel Tov column. Dr. Elliot Davidson, a longtime Daytonian who was medical director of the Center for Family Medicine at Akron General Medical Center, now hosts the podcast Lessons My Patients Taught Me. Since he began the podcast in May, he's interviewed two dozen physicians on the program, including his uncle and mentor, Dr. Herman Abramowitz, on episode number nine. Herman, who now lives in Columbus, was a longtime family practice physician in Dayton. He's a past president of the Ohio State Medical Association and the Montgomery County Medical Society. Herman was Elliot's first partner in practice as a family doctor. I have been thinking about this as a book one day and thought a podcast would be a great way to begin writing get the content out there for feedback, and create an enduring record of these lessons, Elliot says. The podcast with his uncle, Elliot, adds, includes some Dayton Jewish medical history. He worked at his uncle's office during high school. I did all sorts of odd jobs, counting pills, filling x-ray, filing x-rays, and even pouring liniment in bottles, Elliot says on the podcast. 
When my uncle walked in the room and greeted the patients, the look on their faces was astonishing. Even before my uncle said hello, you could see the look of confidence, of comfort, of reassurance on the faces of the men, women, and children that were his patients. I sensed them saying to themselves, here's my doctor. He's going to help me. I'm going to feel better. I could not believe the power in those relationships. The podcast is available at Anchor by Spotify. A street near Daybreak's campus on South Patterson Boulevard at Dayton has been renamed in honor of Linda Kramer, Daybreak's longtime CEO who retired last year. Linda Kramer Way pays tribute to Linda's 23 years of dedicated service to the shelter. Established in 1975, Daybreak is an emergency homeless shelter for runaway and homeless youths. It operates the Miami Valley's only 24-hour crisis hotline and emergency youth shelter. Patty Caruso has been appointed to the Miami University College of Arts and Sciences Alumni Advisory Board. The Max May and Lydia May Memorial Holocaust Art and Writing Contest is now accepting entries for its 2022 competition. The theme for the 2022 contest is Children of the Holocaust. All students in grades 5 through 12 who live in the Miami Valley are eligible to enter. The contest is sponsored by the Holocaust Education Committee of the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton. For details about how to submit entries, go to jewishdayton.org forward slash program forward slash Holocaust Art and Writing Contest. Next, a life cycle from The Observer, Seth Hirschfeld Schwartz. Andrew and Pamela Schwartz announced with gratitude and joy the bar mitzvah of their son, Seth Hirschfeld Schwartz, on Shabbat Chaye Sarah, October 30th, at Beth Abraham Synagogue. A Hillel Academy graduate, Seth currently attends the Miami Valley School, where he is in the seventh grade, playing saxophone with the jazz band and cards with the poker club. Seth can be found playing baseball, his favorite pastime, in or out of season, either with Patterson Park Baseball League or with his dad. Seth is the grandson of Mrs. Lois Gross, Dr. Alan Spetter, and Mr. and Mrs. Theodore and Deborah Schwartz of Blessed Memory. As a bar mitzvah, Seth is honored to support the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation, a 501c3 charitable organization dedicated to assisting September 11th first responders with medical needs not covered by insurance. The foundation was established in memory of Ray Pfeiffer, a New York City firefighter who died on May 28, 2017, from 9-11 cancer. Contributions may be made at the RayPfeifferFoundation.org. Send your Mazel Tov and Life Cycle announcements to JewishObserver at JFGD.net. And next, from the religion page of the Jewish Observer, It's Hard to Be a Jew. It's Supposed to Be, by Rabbi Kari Kosberg, Temple Shalom, Springfield. What follows are comments offered on Shabbat Ve'atchanan, Deuteronomy 3.23.7.11, learned and inspired by the writing of Rabbi Aidan Steinsaltz. May the memory of this righteous one be a blessing. Those who have read the Tanakh, Jewish Bible, know that much of scriptural narrative deals with our ancestors' ongoing love-hate relationship with idolatry, how they would be unfaithful to their covenant with God, slide into worshiping the images of the gods of their neighbors, repent and pledge renewed faithfulness, backslide, repent again, etc. 
this susceptibility was apparent even before they entered the promised land. There was the incident of the golden calf and the episode of being seduced by the Moabites and worshiping their god Baal Peor. Consequently, much of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' last will and testament, constantly warns the people of the dangers of idolatry and how to avoid it. But what exactly is idolatry? Why is the Torah so concerned about it? Why does it caution us against it? And what is the source of its attraction? Contrary to conventional wisdom, idolatry is less about the objects of a person's devotion and more about the person's intention. What a person makes ultimately important in his or her life. From this perspective, it is easy to understand that idolatry can manifest itself in different ways. Idolatry has always been associated with venerating images of Zeus, Aphrodite, or Baal. But if idolatry really is about making anything else besides God of ultimate importance, then whatever we devote all our energies, time, resources to, a career, a car, a political cause, etc., we can also make into idols. In our time, it has been argued that, like our ancestors, there are still Jews who are, who are idolaters and that they separate and isolate one aspect from the totality of the Jewish commitment to God. Examples of such people include, but are not limited to, those who focus their Jewish commitment solely on working for Israel, those who focus their Jewish commitment solely on promoting social justice, those whose passion for Shabbat inspires them to throw rocks at other less observant Jews. Those who pray to only one part of God, for example, the Shekhinah, understood by the mystics to be the female aspect of divinity, thus compromising or even denying the unity of God affirmed in the Shema. In discussing this phenomenon, the late Rabbi Aidan Steinsaltz pointed out that the urge toward idolatry actually is rooted in a religious inclination, the desire to wholly devote oneself to something. This may happen when a person is faced with many disparate, perhaps contradictory elements in his or her quest for meaning. Each element may point in a different direction like fingers on an open hand. The contradictions may lead to confusion, even anxiety, and cause the person to choose one of those elements and elevate it in order to clarify or simplify his or her religious commitment. The focus of devotion may itself not be bad or forbidden, and may even be something quite noble and sacred such as Israel, social justice, Shabbat. But when it is disconnected and isolated from its original total context, its connection to authentic sanctity is lost. Thus the true challenge of resisting idolatry in its many forms is overcoming the allure of oversimplifying one's devotion. For example, there are those who aver that all religions can be reduced to love, love of God and love of one's neighbor. Now, of course, Judaism is all for loving God and loving our neighbors, but Judaism is more complex than love. We are commanded to love God and love our neighbor, but we are taught about the need to hate. Those who love God hate evil. Psalm 97.10 When it comes to the other, we are commanded to love the stranger in our midst, but not to fraternize too much with those outside of the community, lest we follow in their ways. Which of these are important? Both.
but many folks can't deal with both. They want and expect either or and may tend to separate and isolate one element of religious commitment to the exclusion of the others. This is how the Torah and all religious belief, for that matter, morphs into idolatry. There is an old Yiddish saying, Schwer zu seine Yid, it's hard to be a Jew. One of the reasons it's hard is because living as a Jew means being able to navigate the complexity of living with opposites. Celebrating freedom from slavery at Passover, mourning the tragedy of the Holocaust a mere five days later on Yom HaShoah, and a week later once again celebrating the miracle of a Jewish state reborn on Yom HaAtzma'ot. Resonating with the solemnity of Yom Kippur and then rejoicing five days later on Sukkot. Fully understanding that the words, a time for love and a time for hate, a time for war and a time for peace, are not just the lyrics of a well-known song. Instead, they accurately reflect what life is about and that there is a proper time for each. As Rabbi Steinsaltz reminds us, it's hard to be a Jew because it requires us to be extreme and moderate, instructs us when to be quiet, Yom Kippur, and when to be wild, Purim. It means that we know when to dance and when to crawl, when to challenge and when to be submissive. Judaism teaches us to accept this and that, even when we prefer to accept this or that. The latter leads down the path of divisive idolatry. The former affirms the unity of life and thus the creativity, uh, the uniqueness and unity of life's creator. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God alone. And next from the arts and culture section of The Observer, medical fiction, instant pot cooking, anti-terror memoir on virtual cultural arts and book series programs. Brooklyn-based dermatologist Dr. David Biro drew on his medical expertise and his doctorate in English literature for his first novel, This Magnificent Dappled Sea, which he'll discuss at 7 p.m. Monday, November 1st for the Jewish Community Center's Virtual Cultural Arts and Book Series. A nine-year-old boy's need for a bone marrow transplant connects him and his nurse in Italy with a rabbi in Brooklyn who suffers from a crisis of faith. Along the way, the nurse discovers how this Catholic child has Jewish genes. Biro, who also teaches at State University of New York Downstate Medical Center, is the author of two nonfiction books, 100 Days, My Unexpected Journey from Doctor to Patient, and The Language of Pain, Finding Words, Compassion, and Relief. Dayton favorite Paula Scheuer returns to the series to talk about her latest release, the Instapot Kosher Cookbook, 100 Recipes to Nourish Body and Soul, at 7 p.m. Thursday, November 11th. A pastry chef who trained in France, Scheuer is the author of The Kosher Baker, The Holiday Kosher Baker, The Healthy Jewish Kitchen, and The New Passover Menu. She calls the Instant Pot revolutionary, ideal for anyone who wants food fast with less cleanup. Scheuer adds, it's especially helpful when you already have every burner going and three more pots waiting to take their turn. Now I can check off items on my cooking to-do list much faster with equally fast cleanup in between. Wrapping up Cultural Arts and Book Series November programs will be Tracy Walder with her memoir, The Unexpected Spy, From the CIA to the FBI, My Secret Life Taking Down Some of the World's Most Notorious Terrorists at 7 p.m. Tuesday, November 16th. 
Balder is now an adjunct professor of criminal justice at Texas Christian University and serves on the Board of Girl Security, a nonpartisan organization that aims to increase the representation of women in national security. The JCC Cultural Arts and Book Series November Zoom programs are all free. Register at jewishdayton.org forward slash events or call 937-610-1555. And next from the Arts and Culture section of the Observer, Dayton Literary Peace Prize top honors go to fiction and nonfiction Holocaust-related books. For the first time since it was established in 2006, the Dayton Literary Peace Prize annual awards for fiction and nonfiction will honor authors for books each has written on Holocaust-related themes. The authors will be in Dayton October 13th for DLPP's Conversation with the Authors Program at the Victoria Theater to celebrate the 2021 and 2020 winners. Ariana Newman is the recipient of the 2021 Dayton Literary Peace Prize in Nonfiction for One Time Stopped, a memoir of my father's war and what remains. The New York Times bestseller, When Time Stopped, also won the 2020 National Jewish Book Award for Best Memoir. In it, Newman investigates her father's escape from Nazi-occupied Prague, how he assumed a false identity to survive, and how he ultimately spied for the Allies in Berlin. Newman, who was born and raised in Venezuela, now lives in London. When Time Stopped is her first book. People forget numbers, but they rarely forget stories, Newman said in her statement when she received the Dayton Literary Peace Prize Award. We can use words to continue to divide and fragment ourselves, or we can use them to eradicate otherness. It is crucial that we use them to tell stories that build bridges and craft bonds of community. Scottish-German novelist and journalist Alexander Starrett received the 2021 Dayton Literary Peace Prize in Fiction for We Germans, a New York Times book review editor's choice. The novel focuses on an elderly German man whose letter to his grandson explains his actions as a soldier, his guilt as a Nazi perpetrator, and the challenges he faced after World War II. Starrett, who grew up in Scotland, also calls London home. Maybe it's too much of an enlightenment simplification to say that greater knowledge can rein in humanity's more savage, clannish impulses, Starrett said in his statement upon receiving the prize, but humans have an inborn impulse to empathize, to feel along with those whose struggles they read about, which applies as much to what we hear about the Russians or the Americans as it does to characters in novels. Joining the panel conversation along with Newman and Starrett at the Victoria will be 2021 Dayton Literary Peace Prize runners-up and 2020 winners and runners-up. Immediately following the panel, Margaret, Margaret Atwood, 2021-21 winner of Dayton Literary Peace Prizes, Ambassador Richard C. Holbrook Distinguished Achievement Award, will be interviewed by 2015 Holbrook winner Gloria Steinem. Inspired by the Dayton Peace Accords, Dayton Literary Peace Prize is the only international literary peace prize awarded in the United States. Dayton Literary Peace Prize, a conversation with the authors, will be held at 4.30 p.m. Saturday, October 13th at the Victoria Theater, 138 North Main Street in Dayton. Tickets are $20 to $150 and are available for purchase at DaytonLive.org or by calling 
228-3630. And next from the Jewish Family Education section of the Jewish Observer, Not-So-Random Acts of Kindness from Candice, our Quiet Text new series, The Power of Stories. Assisting with the Albanian Muslim refugees in the late 1990s, Israel's field medical team in Kosovo noted that the adult-focused aid agencies were overlooking the traumatized children. In response to its request for volunteers, virtually every secular and religious youth group in Israel sent teams of youth leaders who organized all manner of camp-style activities, from sports to the arts, to make the children's temporary exile feel like a vacation. The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs concluded that it demonstrated the beauty and healing power of kindness. Kindness is fundamental to a healthy society. Psychological research has identified kindness as a universal character strength and virtue, observed its contagious nature, and cataloged its significant physical and mental health benefits. One of the most intriguing discoveries is how kindness generates an increase in oxytocin, the brain hormone responsible for the sense of connectedness and trust. It's what helps societies bond and keeps groups of people together, explains psychiatrist Dr. Marcy Hall. Long before the advent of modern psychology, kindness, chesed or gimilut chasadim, as a virtue, an action, and a kind of social cement, was a central pillar of Judaism. The Torah is bookended by acts of loving kindness. God clothes Adam and Eve and buries Moses. In the book of Exodus, Chesed, God's kindness and love toward humanity, is listed as one of the ten divine attributes which the Talmud explains are prototypes for how humans should act in relationship to one another. So powerful is Gimelut Chasadim, writes Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin, that performing acts of loving-kindness is the closest that humans can come to a genuine imitation of God. Appearing in the Torah nearly 200 times, chesed is often considered Judaism's most comprehensive and fundamental of all ethical virtues. This significance is captured by a well-known aphorism. The Torah stands on three things, Torah, avodah, service to God, and gimilut chasadim, acts of loving-kindness. Despite their importance, however, the concepts of chesed and gimilut chasadim are not easily explained. Chesed expresses both emotion and action, caring and compassion through giving of oneself, the moral commitment to have, we have to one another simply because we are human. Gimilut chasadim emphasizes the underlying notion that chesed isn't generally accomplished by momentary at random acts of kindness, but, as Rabbi Sachs explained, by becoming engaged with real people as we give of our time, caring, and resources. It's about how people live together despite their differences, about working together for the sake of the common good. And, Rabbi Pashki Orlau points out, it's when the command to love your neighbor as yourself is truly fulfilled. Here are some Jewish tales that illustrate the notions of chesed and gimilut chasadim. Yiddish folklore tells of the Rebbe of Nemerov, who would vanish early every Friday morning. His devoted followers concluded he must ascend to heaven to plead on behalf of the community. 
a visiting Litvak confident in his superior rational worldview, resolved to discover the real answer. One Friday, he secretly followed the Rebbe, who dressed as a peasant, went into the forest. There, he chopped down a tree and split the logs into firewood, which he carried in a bundle back to town. As the Litvak watched, the Rebbe knocked at the rundown cottage of a poor widow, announcing he has kindling for sale, assuring her she could pay on credit. After all, doesn't God always provide? He entered, stacked the firewood by the hearth, and lit a fire. Then the Rebbe returned home. From that time on, whenever the townspeople said their Rebbe ascended to heaven, the Litvak, who became the Rebbe's student, responded, and maybe even higher. A popular folk tale from, the pre, from pre-state Israel tells the story of Hanala, who receives a new white Shabbat dress. Cautioned by her mother not to get dirty, the delighted Hanala heads outdoors and proudly shows the dress to her dog, Zuzi, and a nearby cow, Edna, carefully reach, uh, keeping it out of their reach. Hanala then sees an old man with a heavy sack trudging out of the nearby woods. After showing him the dress, she asks about his sack, which he explains is filled with coal. She offers to help him carry it, and they walk together a ways. Returning home, she discovers her dress is marred by black stains and bursts into tears. The early rising moon looks down and whispers, Are you sorry you helped the old man? When Hanala replies no, she is just sad about the stains. The moon reassures her that all will be well. Shimmering moonbeams flow from the sky, turning the stains into spots of silvery light, making Hanala's dress more beautiful than ever. There are 613 Torah commandments, the most central obligation of which is acting with loving kindness, as noted by Rabbi Akiva. This is a great principle of the Torah. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Fundamental to living a meaningful Jewish life and creating a good, cohesive society, Gimilut Hasadim, should be our mindset and lifestyle, guiding how we interact with family and friends, fellow citizens and strangers, even when it's hard, writes civility author Stephen Carter. It would go a long way toward healing today's fractured world. And literature to share, as suggested by Candice R. Quietek, be a mensch. Unleash your power to be kind and help others by Alyssa Udaskin. Being a mensch doesn't require superpowers, just simple shifts in your approach to everyday interactions. Filled with real-world anecdotes and excellent insights, this slim book offers practical ideas for adults and kids about kindness and helping others through difficult situations from life's tragedies to daily interactions, including when someone doesn't meet our expectations. Be a Mensch is not only fun to read, it's an eye-opener to many unexpected ways of being a good and kind person. And Pink and Say by Patricia Palacco. Two Union soldiers, one white and one black, meet on the battlefield. Their true story involves a rescue from the battlefields, a relationship built on common humanity, and the devastation wrought when people cannot see the image of God in one another. While written as an illustrated book for elementary ages, it is a powerful story of loving kindness for adults as well, especially relevant in today's fractured society. And next, the obituary section of The Observer. 
Marsha H. Alpert, age 79, a lifelong resident of Dayton, passed away October 7th. Mrs. Alpert was a realtor for over 40 years. She loved to spend time with her family creating memories, travel, try new local restaurants, and shopping. Mrs. Alpert was preceded in death by her parents, Morris and Ida Bernstein, her husband, Marvin Alpert, brother, Robert Bernstein, and son-in-law, Michael Bondurant. Mrs. Alpert is survived by her three children, Jamie Bondurant, David Alpert, Josh and Heather Alpert, grandson Zach Parrott, and granddaughter Marissa Bondurant, sister Dorothy Bernstein, and many cousins and friends. Interment was at Beth Abraham Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be made to Hospice of Dayton or the charity of your choice. Alan G. Dubrow, age 84, of Dayton, passed away October 3rd. Dr. Dubrow was a retired optometrist who served the Dayton area for over 50 years. His greatest love in life was spending time with family and friends. He was preceded in death by his parents, Sam and Ava Dubrow, his wife, Sandra Roberts Dubrow, and his sister, Shirley Favor. He is survived by his children, Jeffrey and Bonnie Dubrow, Sherry Dubrow, Evan and Carrie Dubrow, eight grandchildren, one great-grandchild, one sister, numerous nieces, nephews, and cousins. Interment was at Riverview Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be made to Ohio State College of Optometry or Parkinson's Foundation. James Bertram Hockman passed away on September 23rd at the age of 80 in Palo Alto, California. The determination with which he battled serious health issues over many years speaks to his courage and dedication to his family. Mr. Hockman met the love of his life, Jean, while attending the Ohio State University. They soon married and had two children, Jeffrey and Marla. While at OSU, Mr. Hockman earned his JD degree and eventually opened his own successful law practice in Dayton, today well recognized as Hockman and Plunkett. He was the youngest judge appointed to the municipal court bench by Governor Rhodes in 1970 and presided over his courtroom for 16 years. Mr. Hockman was recently honored by the Ohio State Bar Association for his service of more than 50 years. As a proud Daytonian, Mr. Hockman's commitment to the community and the arts in particular was evident in his service to a variety of organizations. Among his passions were the Dayton Philharmonic, where he served as trustee, and the Dayton Art Institute, where he liked to ride his bike as a child and took art classes throughout his life. Mr. Hockman was the embodiment of joie de vivre, never letting an opportunity to enjoy life pass him by. He was proud of his travels, which took him around the world to all seven continents. He and Mrs. Hockman took many trips with good friends. Some of his greatest adventures were taken with his children, including climbing the Himalayas with his son Jeff and traversing the Drake Passage, sledding on Antarctica, then rounding Cape Horn with his daughter Marla. Mr. Hockman is survived by his wife, Jean Krieger Hockman, son Jeffrey Hockman and Petra, daughter Marla Hockman, and grandchildren Joshua, Jack, and Abby Hockman. Interment was at Riverview Cemetery. The family requests donations be made to the Stanford Medicine Cancer Institute.
Roberta Bobby Linda Hoffman, 72, of Lando Lakes, Florida, passed away July 5th. Mrs. Hoffman was born in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and after attending high school and college, went on to earn two master's degrees. She dedicated her professional life to her special education students, whom she taught with her unique combination of heartfelt affection and no-nonsense style. Mrs. Hoffman leaves behind her loving husband of 46 years, Larry, her brother Richie and Debbie Weiss and their family, daughter Jenny and Howard Rothbaum, son Steve and Allie Hoffman, and the lights of her life, her grandchildren, Brad and Abby Rothbaum and Alex Hoffman. Her mother, Evelyn Davis, left us just over a year ago. Life took Bobby and Larry from New Jersey to Indiana, where she met her lifelong friend, Ellen Katzman, to Florida and then uh, to Ohio and then to Florida, where she spent her one precious year of retirement continuing to keep us all in line with the intense love and dedication to her family that defined her. We will forever miss her and honor her memory every day. Donations may be made to St. Joseph's Children's Hospital Foundation. Give to stjoeskids.org. Marion Lorraine Plotnick, Nee Goldflees, was born June 9, 1923 in Chicago, the daughter of Eugene and Sophie Goldflees and sister of Bruce Goldflees. Mrs. Plotnick passed away on October 9th at the age of 98. Trained as an occupational therapist at Tufts University in Boston, Mrs. Plotnick returned to Ohio with her husband, Bertram Plotnick, with whom she enjoyed a loving marriage of over uh, 53 years. An enthusiastic traveler and bridge player, she also was a talented home decorator. Mrs. Plotnick's outgoing personality was always on display when meeting new people, and she was a very exuberant and doting grandmother. She is survived by her three sons, Stephen and Shalita, Jeffrey and Teresa, and David, and three grandchildren, Anthony, Catherine, and John, and Benjamin and Caitlin. Interment was at Beth Abraham Cemetery. In memory of Mrs. Plotnick, please make charitable donations to the Mary Scott Nursing Center at 3109 Campus Drive, Dayton, Ohio, 45406. John L. Rieger, born on August 24, 1949, to John and Helen Rieger in Dayton passed away on Sunday, October 10th. Mr. Rieger graduated from Belmont High School, 1967, where he was class president and had great affection for his classmates and school. He attended Miami University in Oxford and graduated in 1971 with a Bachelor of Science degree in business. Preparing to attend law school, Mr. Rieger joined the National Guard, requiring him to postpone school for a year. Returning from basic, Mr. Rieger rethought the law career and began to explore options in business. His uncle and friend, Robert Lamb, approached him with an offer to join a startup, Winston Heat Treating Company, and since 1972, that was his labor of love. He derived great pleasure from growing the business and its reputation in the industry and cherished his co-workers, customers, and suppliers. Far and away, Mr. Rieger's greatest love and joy were his family, wife Sharon, daughter Elise and Michael Henderson, son David and Caitlin Rieger, and adored grandchildren Gavin, Vivian, and Bianca. 
truly beloved were Mr. Rieger's sister Janet and Dr. Robert Van Etten, niece Maria and Kent Raidmaker, their twins Ella and Violet and sister-in-law Evelyn Goldstein, special cousins, family, and friends. Mr. Rieger was obsessed with taking care of things, leading and managing, while always attempting to take to make things better. Unfiltered, generous, and caring, he possessed a keen and offbeat sense of humor and sarcastic wit with a gift for satire and impressions. Mr. Rieger was blessed with many friends and served as a best man 12 times. He loved casinos, business, politics, gardening, or just sitting quietly smoking a good cigar while pondering life. His favorite jobs were being owner and CEO of Winston Heat Treating, president of the Metal Treating Institute, and president of Temple Beth Orr. He valued time spent at Delco Products as a trucker for Winston and warehouseman for Peninsular Steel. Mr. Rieger received recognition from numerous committees, boards, and nonprofits, including MTI's Industry Legend Award. Interment was at David Cemetery. Remembrances can be made to a charity of your choosing. A celebration of life will be held for friends and family at a later date. And now we'll go over to JTA for some news updates. Jewish skeptics of critical race theory say Texas Holocaust incident does not deter them by Ben Sales. When a school administrator in Texas was caught on tape saying that a new law forces teachers to offer an opposing view on the Holocaust, the raft of state laws aiming to prohibit the teaching of critical race theory took on a new light. For Jews who support education about systemic racism and oppose laws restricting such education, the Texas incident proves their point. Just like there is no historical debate about the historicity, the historicity of the Holocaust, there are, no, there are also no both sides to American chattel slavery, to systemic racism, to lynchings and land theft, and indigenous genocide, tweeted Rabbi Danya Rutenberg, a prominent liberal Jewish voice. Remember, people, that the suggestion to teach both sides of the Holocaust has come up because there is a law in Texas that is there to censor teaching on anti-racism, wrote Ruttenberg, the scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. This is about white supremacy, yes, and but at its root, it's about anti-blackness. But some of the loudest American Jewish voices opposing critical race theory or the associated idea of wokeness say the incident in Texas has not led them to reconsider their stance. They say the Texas administrator's message represents a distortion of the values they want to see in schools. The Holocaust, like the history of slavery in the U.S., is not an idea or an opinion. David Bernstein, the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and an opponent of education focused on critical race theory, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It's a historical fact. One can support the free expression of ideas and still recognize that there are people peddling hateful and stupid claims that must be debunked. Critical race theory is a concept in legal studies that says racism is baked into the laws and institutions of American society. Lately, conservative activists have seized on the idea that public school students are being taught history 
through a lens of critical race theory. Some states, like Texas, have passed laws that ban teaching the concepts underlying the theory. Texas's law states that when teachers teach widely debated and currently controversial issues of public policy or social affairs, they need to do so from diverse and contending perspectives without giving deference to any one perspective. Recently, the board of the Texas School District, where the administrator works, reprimanded a fourth grade teacher for including a book about anti-racism in her classroom library, according to NBC News, which first reported the Holocaust comments. Texas law is aimed at countering the idea that an individual, by virtue of his or her race or sex, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. But the administrator in the tape suggested that its focus on balance applies to teaching historical events like the Holocaust. Bernstein's relatively new organization, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, published a letter this year articulating a Jewish opposition to efforts to teach critical race theory in schools. The way to fight racism isn't to cease discussion and debate. To do so is antithetical to American ideals and antithetical to Judaism, the letter says. The way to fight racism is to insist on our common humanity and to engage in dialogue, including with those who dissent. Some signatories of the letter said they opposed the Texas legislation and distinguished between teaching historical events and teaching any one interpretation of the effects of those events. The dispute about the interpretation of events is completely legitimate, but the dispute about the existence of events is either dangerous or stupid or both said Rabbi David Wolpe of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. You can, for example, argue endlessly about the effects and causes of slavery, but to argue that slavery didn't happen is idiotic or pernicious, and the same thing is true with the Holocaust. Bernstein said he isn't opposed to teaching about systemic racism amid a wider discussion of race in America, but he is opposed to teachers exclusively saying that systemic racism is to blame for current racial disparities. He doesn't think that stance inevitably leads to statewide bans like the one in Texas. Just because there are people trying to ban any discussion of CRT, which as I said I strongly disagree with, doesn't mean that anyone who raises concerns about the ideological indoctrination of kids agrees with it, he said. Just because there are edge cases and gray areas doesn't mean we should shut down the free expression of ideas. Russell Nice, a Jewish educator who cautioned in an op-ed this year in the St. Louis Jewish newspaper that anti-critical race theory laws could have a blowback on Holocaust education, said that people distinguishing between teaching historical events and their causes and effects don't understand how Holocaust education generally occurs. The way that Holocaust education is taught in America is it talks about systems of oppression. It talks about dehumanization, Nice told JTA. I don't even know what it means to just teach facts. Facts don't mean anything unless they're contextualized in historical context, unless they're contextualized in a way of understanding that particular era. He added, when you begin to ban all these approaches to understanding history, 
you are banning the way we teach Holocaust education in America today. Nice worries that Jews who advocate against critical race theory could end up aiding a movement that will undermine Holocaust education. We have folks with a particular political agenda who are using scare tactics to try to advance their political agenda, and it will come back to bite them in the ass as it has here, he said. Holocaust educators are also speaking out about what the Texas incident could portend. The Holocaust and Humanity Center in Cincinnati said in a statement that it was deeply concerned about reports of the administrator's remarks. We hate crimes in the United States, with hate crimes in the United States soaring to record highs. It is imperative that teachers are encouraged to devote instructional time to teaching the Holocaust, a seminal event in human history, freely, the statement said, adding that teachers may feel inhibited from providing necessary historical context and discussing the practices and ideologies that contributed to the Holocaust such as stereotyping and anti-Semitism. Beth Bethany Mandel, another signatory of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values letter, says she doubts Holocaust education in Texas will be hindered. She said she felt that the administrator in the recording sounded like she opposed the restrictions. The administrator tells the teachers, I think you were terrified and I wish I could take that away, and that the teachers appeared to find her remark on the Holocaust ridiculous. Mandel, who homeschools her own children, said she opposes the Texas law because she believes states should strive not to dictate what teachers teach. She feels that the Texas law mirrors the recently passed California legislation favored by liberals requiring that schools teach ethnic studies. The fight over ethnic studies has divided Jews in the state and has animated opponents of critical race theory who argue that the state's sample curriculum exemplifies what they're fighting against. I don't think that government should come in from on high and have these diktats in the classroom, both with ethnic studies and with the Texas law, Mendel said. It really hampers teachers' abilities to recognize what their kids need and how to best serve those needs. The U.S. rejoined the United Nations Human Rights Council on Thursday, three years after former President Trump pulled out of it over what his administration deemed a shameless bias against Israel. President Biden's envoy to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, argued in a statement that the move will not mean the U.S. does not stand with Israel. We will oppose the Council's disproportionate attention on Israel, which includes the Council's only standing agenda item targeting a single country, she said. The Council, which investigates alleged human rights abuses in UN member countries, has for decades routinely singled out Israel in reports and resolutions, particularly in the wake of the country's many armed conflicts in Gaza. Nikki Haley, former envoy to the UN under Trump, said in 2018 after the U.S. pullout that the Council was not worthy of its name. Then Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu applauded the decision. The pullout split Jewish lawmakers at the time, including Democrats. The council, formed in 2006, held an internal election, name its slate of uh, 47 countries on Thursday, as it does every three years, and several countries with controversial human rights records made the cut, including China, Russia, Cuba. Hillel Neuer, the head of UN Watch, a watchdog group that often calls the council and other UN bodies out for its Israel critique, 
lamented to the AFP that so many of what he calls oppressive regimes were elected. A Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in Georgia canceled a fundraiser that was set to be hosted by a film producer whose social media account predominantly displayed an anti-vax symbol in the shape of a swastika. That producer, Bettina Sofia Viviano Langlais, was set to host a fundraiser for Herschel Walker, a retired football player who is running for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in Georgia. Viviano Langlais and her husband, Jim Langlais, also hosted last year's mask-burning bonfire, organized by the Dallas Jewish Conservatives to celebrate the end of COVID restrictions in Texas. Viviano Langlais' Twitter profile picture showed four syringes arranged in the shape of a swastika, an emerging symbol in the anti-vaccination movement that has made comparisons between public health rules and the Holocaust a mainstay. Asked for comment about the image by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the campaign first responded with a statement Wednesday morning saying the image was clearly an anti-mandatory vaccination graphic and that Herschel unequivocally opposes anti-Semitism and bigotry of all kinds. But within a few hours, the campaign changed course, calling the image very offensive and saying it does not reflect the values of Herschel Walker or his campaign canceled the fundraiser which had been set for this weekend. Viviana Langlais denied that the image was anti-Semitic in a single deleted tweet, though she misspelled the word in the process. I am the poster, and because of the left's need to silence free speech, I took it down, she wrote Wednesday. It's insane to think that pic was anti-Semitic. Desperate, actually. It was a pic showing what happens when fascists demand people insert foreign material into their body they don't want. If he wins the Republican nomination in May 2022, Walker would face Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock in the general election in November 2022. Walker has been endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Jurgen brings Passover to the Great British Baking Show with Haroset and matzah-topped pavlova by Felissa Kramer, JTA. Jurgen Krauss, the basically a Jewish dad on the latest version of the Great British Baking Show, lived up to his reputation during Desserts Week when he produced a Passover-inspired pavlova complete with a traditional haroset topping. The dessert also sustains a different tradition, the internationally popular show's habit of not getting Jewish content quite right when host Noah Fielding badly mispronounces Haroset while describing Krauss's creation. Krauss, who is from the Black Forest region of Germany, is married to a British Jew, and their family belongs to a Reform synagogue in Brighton, where the Jewish Chronicle reported he has taught a challah baking class to children. In the first episode of the season, the Passover Seder plate is visible behind him in a scene introducing viewers to his home and family. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.